podcast one production. Not long ago, someone told me that they'd found a website that would give you the current date in March 2020. March 2020 is long over, but not on that website. It just kept counting up, day after day, and as I record this, on the 8th of December 2020, it is now the 283rd day of March 2020. And yes, of course that's a joke. It's funny because March 2020 felt endless. So much happened every single day, sometimes every single hour. It felt as though the entire world had suddenly shifted pace. It became nearly impossible to predict what might happen next. Good day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and learn. 2020 has been a year with some very hard-learned lessons. So in this episode, we're taking a look back across Series 4, finding those moments when our guests shone a light on this new world. This world looks very little like it did at the start of 2020, a year when the future came faster than ever before. There was only one story in 2020, the pandemic. From early February 2020, all of human activity played out on a stage set by the pandemic. It framed every aspect of human life. As a result... Most of our shows in Series 4 somehow touched on the pandemic. As the year went on and the new became the normal, the pandemic faded into the background, but it never went away. And earlier in 2020, well, it was all anyone could talk about. Our first show in Series 4 was all about the pandemic and privacy. The Australian government was talking about introducing a new smartphone app, COVIDSafe. It's one that used Bluetooth to help in contact tracing. Not a new idea exactly, near as I can figure. I invented something very much like this 15 years earlier, never really guessing that it would be useful for public health. But then there are other ways to do contact tracing, as Episode 1 guest Dr. Genevieve Bell explains. So it was fascinating to me to look at how this was unfolding in Taiwan, which in some ways is a really interesting example for what has been used, partly because of the extraordinary sets of data that are being mobilised and combined. So in Taiwan, your travel data and your medical data are at the moment combined so that when you turn up to your GP's office, they know if you've been overseas and they'll put you through a different, literally through a different door in the clinic so that you're not necessarily coming into the main clinic. But the agreement there between government and citizens was that that combination of data would only last 30 days. So it had a sunset clause and the data would be disambiguated again. The Taiwanese, they simply slurp up the data from the mobile carrier. And they know where you've been. 
that was a privacy bridge too far for Australia. Instead, the government asked the public to start using the COVID Safe app, and it worked, sort of. Within a few weeks, 7 million of us had downloaded the app, but the app never really worked very well. It was fighting against the smartphone's operating system. On iOS devices, it rarely worked as well as it needed to. On Android, it was a bit better. But by then, COVID Safe faced an entirely different problem, something that no one had suspected might happen. By the beginning of June, Australia had largely eliminated the virus. Not completely, but enough. Enough for people to stop worrying so much about a casual contact leading to a COVID-19 infection. And at that point, the app, well, it basically landed in the unnecessary bin. And the government, which had done so much to promote the COVID-safe app, they basically went quiet. It's not clear that the COVID-safe app could have done much to prevent the huge outbreak in Victoria in June and July. In part because people weren't using it, and in part because there were simply too many contacts to trace. The really useful range of a contact tracing app is that space between too few cases, which is when people won't use it because they're not worried enough to use it, and too many cases when contact tracing just gets swamped. And Australia only rarely found itself in that space between those two points. And this means that a technical solution for a public health problem, it might not be the answer you're looking for. So the contact tracing itself isn't the solution. It's part of a whole collection of things you need to do simultaneously. And the trick here is that in focusing on one piece of the puzzle, you sometimes lose focus on the others. And it's all three of them that will be the, not the solution, all three of them that are the staged public health intervention. I am hoping that in years to come, we remember this lesson because contact tracing apps, they've been rolled out around the world and none of them appear to have done a lot to slow the spread of the pandemic. They feel like they should be more helpful than they've actually been in practice. And that gap, that gap is telling us something. It's something we need to pay attention to. That's a hard learned lesson. Next up, we touched base with some of our most popular guests from series two and three. Tiffany Schlein wrote an amazing book titled 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week, which sounds like a great idea until you go into pandemic lockdown and screens become your only touch point to the world of other people. Though, as Tiffany argued in episode two, that simply made time away from screens more important than ever before. And it feels like 10 times more important now. I look forward to it in the most, it it feels like the saving element of my week. And as connected as we all are, and and I've seen beautiful moments of humanity. I, I actually, my faith in the web, you and I met in the early days of the web, has been restored in a lot of ways. And seeing it being used for such good and collaboration and inspiring people and sharing information and so much, but it's also a lot of stress. It's the news cortisol stress bath all the time. Um, I'm fully exhausted by the end of every day. As much as all the connecting has been fabulous, I find the Zoom is just, it's more exhausting. So I literally feel like I collapse every night. 
And every Friday night, you know, we'll usually do a Zoom with family from across the country uh, before we shut down. But then all the screens go off and we have a dinner with each other. And, um, and then Saturday, no screens. It is still our favorite day of the week. And I would just say so much more important because I feel like there's so much to process right now. And when you're online all the time, you're just in a constant state of reacting, connecting, responding. You're in a, in a state of reaction. And to have a day each week, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of thinking. I do a lot of napping and reading in a way I don't with the phone around. Um, but I feel like we're going to want to know what we were really thinking in a, in a, and have, creating space to be with yourself, to be with your own thoughts, to think about what's going on, to be present and be really protected from everything. The one thing we couldn't see, even though it really should have been completely obvious, was that access to screens, it wasn't really equitable. Which means access to your job or your classroom or your friends and family and neighbors, that wasn't easy for a lot of folks because they didn't have the kit or they didn't have the connectivity or they didn't have the technical chops to work it all out. And they couldn't even invite a friend over to help solve the problem. It seems as though the digital divide that we'd already spotted in the classroom. The divide that gives the haves better access to educational opportunity, while the have-nots got further shut out of those same opportunities, that divide massively widened. And you can't just throw money at that sort of problem. It's not as though every employer or school could afford to throw money at the problem. Because the way we reacted during the lockdown it reflected our expectation for how the world works. But it only works that way for some people. And we talked to neuroscientist Fiona Kerr on the same episode. She laid out some of the problems young people might encounter as we barricaded ourselves behind screens. So with younger people they're actually not dealing um, any better. In fact, sometimes they're dealing worse with the situation because, and there's a number of things put forward um, to account for that, but what seems to be a, a good body of initial, if anyway, initial um, knowledge is that because there's less structure now with young people in the you know, setting up definite meetings and parties and those sorts of things. It's much more fluid. One of the things that they relied on heavily was serendipitous interaction, direct interaction. So, yes, you have your social media, but there was this constant way that you could also physically interact. You know, you just happened to be there and hang out. And that stopped. So, whereas older people were also used to periods of being on their own and having to, um, to just content themselves with their own company, what we've got is a generation that's not used to doing that. I and mean, I know we talked last time about that lack of being able to just cut off technology and be go inside and be within yourself and in the environment. So that's proving quite an issue. And it's part of the, the increase that we're starting to see in the mental health curve, which is coming behind the COVID curve that we really need to act on early. Eight months later, and we're seeing the mental health consequences of COVID-19. Some of that is because we've lost our balance around our screen time. But some of it's also because we're starved of human contact. 
In a moment, we'll take a look at how transportation and money have changed over this longest of years. Welcome back to our walkthrough series four of the next billion seconds, charting our path through a year unlike any other. In our third episode, we reconnected with Next Billion Cars co-host Sally Dominguez for her read on how the pandemic would transform our expectations on how we would use our automobiles. I believe we're in the middle of a radical rethink of what a car needs to be. And your personal vehicle has suddenly become part of your resilience toolkit. So how do you face disaster squarely? protect the ones you love, and maintain a safe space while providing supplies and food back to the home with your own resilient vehicle. COVID-19 has accelerated some massive societal disruptions that were always going to happen. I mean, we're heading into the fourth revolution, this idea of digitised world, robots, automation, machine meets man. So we were always going to see some hugely disruptive traits But right now, with people confined to home, with disease spreading exponentially, with work being redefined, we have people asking, what is trust? What is resilience? What is home? What is work? And here is an opportunity for a fundamental rethink of what is a car, because it can be an energy source. It can be your workplace. It's the way you keep your family secure. It's the way you stay safe. And if indeed trust has fully broken down, suddenly a person who was cool with public transport doesn't want to go anywhere near anything that's communal. So here we have this opportunity for car companies to radically rethink what they can provide and give society a new type of vehicle that offers us what we're craving right now. This is the point. The car has suddenly, in this raging pandemic where no one from one week to the other can tell us how it transmits and what's safe and what's not, the car is giving us a cockpit of security and personal space. And as the driver, you're now in control of being able to take your little personal, private and very safe space wherever you want. You protect it from everyone else. You don't let them get in the car. So I think it's not just being in that cocoon. It's being able to get from A to B completely safety. This is, this is, you're in control of your own environment at a time when everything is spiraling out of control. Cars have always been sold to us as instruments of personal freedom. And the pandemic changed that. It put the safety within our personal spaces front and center. In November of 2020, it was reported that used car sales in Australia were the strongest they'd been in a generation. It had become a seller's market because so many people had abandoned public transport for fear of infection. The roads in Sydney, they were as crowded as they had ever been, maybe more so. And that's something else we didn't see coming. And I wonder... After we've all had the vaccine, whether that's going to be the world we really want. Something else we didn't see coming arrived in October of 2020. Here's Jonathan DeCarteret, CEO of Index Capital, on what happened. So there was a relatively surprising announcement out of the blue from PayPal that they were entering the crypto markets by allowing the users 
of PayPal to pay for purchases with Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. What will happen practically overnight is you know, hundreds of millions of people suddenly having a crypto wallet and being able to transact in that. I think the key thing for us is, you know, how many of those people are actually going to use that wallet and buy Bitcoin and start to uh, make purchases in it. And that obviously is going to be a much smaller number. But what this does do in one very swift move is bring cryptocurrency to a huge population of people who are transacting already, but just in fiat. Now, PayPal had let it be known that they would roll out their Bitcoin trading and payment system early in 2021. And then, again surprising everyone, they rolled it out almost immediately on the 15th of November. That's just three weeks later. Mark Jeffrey was another frequent guest on this series. He bought himself some Bitcoin using his US-based PayPal account. It just worked. And as Mark noted in our episode, that first impression is very important. For most users, the PayPal Bitcoin experience will be their first Bitcoin experience. And whatever PayPal allows, doesn't allow, provides as niceties like being able to send to a face and a name or an, or an email address, that is what will forever be imprinted in the minds of, you know, the, the 200x times more users that are coming into the Bitcoin space. And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, the first impression will be PayPal's first impression. But I think, you know, right now, uh, a lot of people, um, when they want to go search for something, they go to Google and they think of Google as the front page to the internet, right? Because that's the first, that's one of the first things they've ever run into. So they don't, they don't think of Google as just another page. They think of it as the front door. And so I think a lot of people will think of PayPal, likewise, as the front door to Bitcoin. So the future of digital cash, it is arriving faster than we ever thought. Something else seems to be happening, and it's happening to the price of Bitcoin. On Monday, the 19th of October in 2020, that's three days before PayPal's announcement, the price of Bitcoin sat at around 11,500 US dollars. On Monday, the 7th of December 2020, that's not even two months later, the price of Bitcoin had risen to around 19,300 US dollars. That's a nearly 70% rise in about seven weeks. Now, is this because of PayPal? And we put that question, which was at the time completely hypothetical, we put that question to Jonathan DeCarteret. Here's what he had to say. Mike Novogratz, who's like one of the kind of industry leaders, he's next kind of Goldman Sachs fortress director, was quoted as saying, we have now crossed the Rubicon. Okay, this is that moment when Bitcoin gets to shine. And what this now allows, potentially, is hundreds of millions of people who've always thought about Bitcoin and always heard about it. And the next time, and there will be a next time, that there's a pump, they now have this super easy, familiar and trusted wallet that they can click on in a few seconds and say, do you know what? I think I'd like to partake in that. I think I'd like to speculate on the price of Bitcoin and to do that in a very easy way. So I think that to me is just one of the key drivers and accelerators that Bitcoin um, is experiencing and that PayPal really bring to the party. There's no question that the dynamics around Bitcoin 
and cryptocurrencies more generally, they have changed because of PayPal. Price is only one indicator. The other indicator is a growing awareness of digital currencies. China's got one known as the DCEP. There are others coming. And we will be doing a three-part deep dive on that topic early in Series 5 of the next billion seconds. Because there's a lot here. It's closer than it looks, and it's going to fundamentally transform economics. Now, if this year has taught us anything, it has taught us about limits. We like to believe ourselves invincible, immortal, all-powerful, and this year showed us what we really are, still very much under the sway of natural forces well beyond our control. That loss of control, it feels terrifying. But you know what? It's also liberating. It takes some of the pressure off. We don't need to be perfect. All we need to do is to be better tomorrow than we were yesterday. And that's why we ended Series 4 with an episode that did its best to imagine a realistic path to a better future. The Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Jess Scully, wrote a book, Glimpses of Utopia, full of practical steps that we can take. And here's the thing. The pandemic has given us the permission to take these steps. And we recorded a huge interview with Jess. Only a portion of that made it into the episode. I wanted to take an opportunity to fix that because one thing we didn't cover in that episode, one thing we've learned clearly in this year of the pandemic, is that if we're really intent on making our world a better place, we need to take a long, hard look at representation. We live in this thing called representative democracy, right? That's the theory. So the theory is that we select people who kind of represent our interests and our values and they go to a place, whether it's, you know, Macquarie Street or, or you know, Spring Street in Melbourne or uh, they go to Canberra and they speak on our behalf and they represent our interests and values. But there's a real disconnect, Right. Because the people we elect to represent us, the ones who stand forward usually for for election, tend not to look like most Australians, right? They're older, richer and whiter than most Australians. They're more likely to be male. The average Australian politician in federal parliament is a guy called Andrew who's 51 years old. He has two degrees. One of them is a law degree. He has two houses. He has a wife and two kids. Now, the average Australian is younger than that. Uh, a 38-year-old woman, actually. Um, The average Australian, well, more than 50% of us were either born overseas or have at least one parent born overseas. Most of us don't own two houses. We were lucky to have one or, you know, be renting. And because of that lack of representative representation and because of a number of other undemocratic factors in terms of how party politics work, the influence of the media moguls. It's a, it's a long list. We tend to get decision-making that doesn't necessarily reflect the values or the needs of most people. And we tend to hear one group being overrepresented, people who are wealthier, who are older, who are more likely to be culturally homogenous. They tend to be overrepresented. And this isn't just here. This is common all over the world. And this is a particularly good idea as people exit from the crisis that was 2020 and head into a future where we already know the shape of some of the crises to come. 
And they've just done it in the UK and in France, and they've had climate conventions there. They're about to kick off one in Scotland. And in both of those instances, when you get a truly representative group of citizens together, when you empower them with the information and access to experts, when you give them constructive structures for debate, they can create policy. It doesn't just have to be left to an elite class. And 79% of the people who were the citizen decision makers in the UK demanded a green recovery from the COVID crisis. And whether or not people have come into it with an agenda to take climate action, they come out of the process informed and motivated and with urgency to make change. Which may not be utopia, but it will probably be better than we're doing today. And that's not all. In episodes four and five, we looked at the rise and rise of the new meats, whether meat substitutes like V2 food or vat-grown meats. Neither of them were very common when we released those shows in the middle of 2020. But like so much in 2020, this has surprised us as well. Because I can now go into any Coles or Woolworths in Australia and I can find V2 food and a bunch of competitive products from a range of other companies. This is amazing. My options as a vegetarian for meat substitutes, they've gone from poor to outstanding in less than six months. This is going to change the way we think of food and our diet. And that grown meat, well, when we interviewed Val Food CEO George Pepiu, he put that out to basically the end of the decade we're going to lose this one-to-one relationship between animals and the meat that we eat. And just like every other aisle in the supermarket, we're going to shop for protein as brands, which we understand the properties of. These aren't agricultural commodities anymore, but these are branded products where we understand the experience. So 10 years from now, you might be walking into a supermarket and faced with a much wider range of choice of cultured meat products that are purely sold as brands without an animal in sight or an animal name in sight that you're choosing because they have the most nutrition. Picking something up on the shelf that's loaded full of protein, packed with omega-3s and full of micronutrients because you're watching your figure. And that may in fact contain the muscle cells of kangaroo and the fat cells of salmon and the cells from beef liver to give you that incredible nutritional profile. Or you might want to go for something really decadent, pick off something from the other end of the shelf, which contains beef muscle and lobster muscle and pork fat for this just beautiful, fragrant, decadent, rich experience to celebrate a you know, hard week. There's going to be way, way more options enabled by the separation from having to produce and rear animals in order to eat meat. A decade away for vat-grown meat in the supermarket aisle now, At the time, that sounded about right, and it turned out to be completely wrong. In the final and perhaps weirdest surprise of 2020, in early December, the food regulator in Singapore approved vat-grown chicken for human consumption. It'll be sold in restaurants and then in the supermarket aisle. And that's not somewhere off in the next billion seconds. That future is already here. It's part of the very weird history of 2020. And that brings us to the conclusion 
of Series 4. It has been a wild ride, and we've done our best to frame a future that seems to be unfolding much faster than anyone had planned. That's not a bad thing, but it does mean the next billion seconds will be more incredible and weird and unpredictable and wonderful and scary and hopeful and exciting than any of us had imagined. Even us futurists. And that's my big takeaway from this most extraordinary of years. Has this episode gotten you to thinking about all the unexpected ways the world changed in 2020? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production by Darcy Thompson. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search The Next Billion Seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. (laughs) 